one of my wife's greatest gifts is she is a very skilled uh, trip planner. So she's very good at uh, finding like great deals. Like, she'll plan a trip and then she'll present it to me and we're staying in this like ridiculous hotel and she's like, it cost us $9 because of our credit card points or something like that. And I'm like, how do you do this, right? She finds awesome deals and then she will find a lot of fun things to do that are almost always kind of off the beaten path, a little sketchy. And it's great, I've learned to enjoy it, but sometimes it's difficult because my wife and I are molded very differently. She is fearless, there's something dangerous, she's like, let's do it, nothing bad's gonna happen. I went to private school, so I'm like, am I gonna get dirty when we do it, right? So I I don't really uh, dive into them headlong. So early in marriage, we would go on a lot of these fun trips before children came along and demanded that our money be used on them. Uh, So we would go on these fun trips, and one in particular, we went to France, where some of her family is, we're visiting family, and then we went snorkeling in France. First time I've ever been snorkeling, and Claudia was like, I found an Airbnb that will take us snorkeling. And I was like, a hotel that will take us snorkeling? She's like, no, it's another thing. I was like, this sounds like one of your made-up things that you wrote me into, and it was, right? So we, we find these, this snorkeling crew who takes us out, and this whole time I'm like, I know what's underneath that water. Jaws and his friends, right? I've seen one through nine of Jaws where like the grandson is taking revenge against the family. I know the second I go into that water, I'm not, you know, swimming back to this tin boat. And even if I do, he's going to flip that thing over. There's nothing but danger underneath that water. So I had very clear, uh, low expectations would be the wrong word, terror expectations. I was kind of throwing a fit on our way out there. I was like, we're going to die and I'm going to blame you. She's like, it will be fine. So we finally get in the water, and I've never had a more life-changing moment. The second my eyes left the surface to go down into the ocean, I was changed forever. I mean, I was like, I didn't know this beauty existed. And Claudia actually got sick because of all the waves. She got seasick, so she was just a floating body on the surface trying not to throw up, and I was like, I'll see you at the end. This is incredible. Right, the second I took the plunge, the second I put my head under the water, all of my fearful expectations that my life was going to be over and those sorts of things was changed into absolute beauty and glory. And I've never been snorkeling again, but I've asked her every day since, can we go back and go snorkeling? There was this encounter and then radical expectation change in my life. And that's something that as we have seen Jesus slowly unfold, Throughout the Gospel of Matthew, he is constantly confronting our expectations. As we see some new thing about him that's incredible, it's immediately followed up with, you're thinking about him wrongly. We see he's this incredible teacher, and so you would expect him to just cast down his wisdom from on high, and then immediately he goes and eats with the sinners. Immediately he touches the lepers. That's not what we expected from the great, highly exalted teacher to get down in the dirt with the unwanted. He's constantly changing our expectations. But as we've seen over and over and over and over again, though it may be difficult to grasp at first when we actually put our head under the surface, when we actually see who he truly is, it is infinitely better than we had expected. So we have another one of these moments today where Jesus is going to bring a great correction. We think he's one thing, and he's going to say, no, no, I'm doing something radically different, and it's going to come with some heavy, heavy, daunting words. It's going to seem like Jaws is in the water, but 
the more we see who he is and the more we understand what he's actually called us to do, we will see there is nothing but glory under the surface. So we're going to see three things about Jesus in this passage. Number one, that he is disruptive. He's disruptive. Number two, he is worthy. He's disruptive. He's worthy. And number three, he is rewarding. Disruptive, worthy, rewarding. And this is going to radically change our expectations. So look at verse 34. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. So right out of the gate, there's the correction. Do not think. You're thinking one thing and it's wrong. Don't think it anymore. Think this. So what are we, what are we seeing wrongly? Do not think that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. And if you know your Bible, that should make you squirm a little bit. You're like, hang, hang on, hang on. Isn't one of your like names Prince of Peace? Didn't at your birth, the angels filled the sky and they said, peace on earth and goodwill towards men. Your arrival, isn't that supposed to bring peace? Isn't that what everybody has been screaming this whole time? Don't we sing at Christmas time, peace on earth and mercy mild. What do you mean, Jesus, that you're not here to bring peace? What is this apparent misunderstanding that we have? You see, there was a great expectation for Jesus' arrival. All throughout the Old Testament, the prophets would declare, when the Messiah comes, he is going to bring unthinkable peace. The wolf is going to lie down with the lamb. Your swords will be beaten into plowshares. Kids will be playing over snake holes and stuff like that, right? There'll be total peace when the Messiah comes, and the Messiah's here. And he's healing the sick. He's raising the dead. He's seeming to bring peace everywhere he goes. So the conclusion might be great. Our great time of peace is here. Jesus is here, so now finally all my problems will go away. All the chaos in my life will finally be turned to peace. We can finally get back to the good old days, living the good old life of peace. And there's the misunderstanding right there. The misunderstanding that Jesus is correcting is this the false idea that he's going to bring painless peace. The false idea that he will bring painless peace. Jesus isn't denying that he's the prince of peace. What he's saying is, I am not going to bring peace to this earth the way that you're expecting me to bring peace to the earth. Rather, I'm going to bring peace through disruption, through a sword. The way we get to that peace is through a sword, through disruption. Let me say it this way. You don't bring about the peace of ending World War II by going to Hitler and saying, it's peacetime. How do you bring about the peace of ending World War II? You have to invade Normandy. You don't just say, it's peacetime, stop all the bad stuff, right? You have to invade Normandy. And the Prince of Peace has come, but there's an army of wickedness that he has to go through before he gets to the peace. There's sin, infinite sin, against a holy God that needs to be paid for before he gets to the peace. There's a serpent's head that needs to be crushed before he gets to the peace and death that must be defeated before he gets to peace. Through the disruption, 
through the sword that he brings, he will eventually bring about the peace that he has promised. And more applicable to us, as we've seen in Matthew 10, this is a whole chapter about, you want to follow me, you're joining my mission. Jesus saying, the peace will not only come through a sword, through disruption, if you want to follow me, this disruption will be your disruption. In fact, this disruption will go right to the center of your life, right to the center of your closest relationships, right to the center of your family life. Look at verse 35. For if I, or sorry, for I have come to set man against his father and daughter against her mother and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a person's enemies will be those in his own household. This is somewhat hard for us to grasp because we, it's just normal in our society to have broken families and so strife in the midst of the family isn't that uncommon for us. But in Jesus' day, a father is the patriarch of the family. He would have demanded supreme loyalty from the son. A mother is the matriarch of the family. She would have demanded supreme loyalty from any daughter. If you're a daughter-in-law, you've married into a family, you've been brought in, and your biggest advocate is your mother-in-law. The primary approval you're seeking is your mother-in-law. So to go against your mother-in-law would put you in total isolation. And then Jesus gives us the wonderful summary statement. You know, he gives us the details of persecution a couple verses before. And he says, by the way, everyone's going to hate you, right? A great summary statement. He has another one here. Your enemies will be in your own home. Quite literally, the last place you would expect people to be against you, the last place you would expect disruption, broken relationships as a result of Jesus is exactly where it will be. Notice he's saying the disruption isn't just going to be out there. It will be something you experience, and it will be something you experience at the core of your closest relationships, if you want to follow me. The very foundations of your relational life will be disturbed. If you drive around Texas long enough, you'll see those house-divided flags right outside of people's houses where it's, you know, A&M in Texas or Texas and OU and Tech and whoever they hate, right? You just have those house divided plans. It's a fun way of saying we've got extreme rivalry within the home. This is the ultimate not joking house divided flag. Those who are supremely loyal to Jesus and those who want nothing to do with him. If you follow me, the sword I'm bringing so that there might actually be peace on earth, mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled, will go to the very core of your closest relationships. Notice what's happening here. So Jesus isn't just giving you more bad news about, you're going to be my disciple, it's going to be hard. He's not just harping on another set of bad news. He's not even saying it's going to be really tough, so gear up, right? Motivate yourself for the mission. Jesus here is dealing Right at the end of this great chapter of sending us out as his missionaries, as his sent ones, he's dealing with a fundamental problem in the human heart. Everyone wants Jesus. Everyone wants Jesus so long as it doesn't cost them anything. Nobody has any problems with Jesus so long as it doesn't mess with their life. So long as he serves them, he's powerful, that's great. How can his power benefit me? He speaks with such great authority, that's great. How can his authority benefit me? He forgives, that's great. I've got a lot of worldly guilt. How can I kind of get my slate wiped clean so I can keep on 
going. He's a savior, great. I'm not a big fan of the idea of burning for eternity. This guy will get me a mansion, great. He benefits me eternally. You see, everybody loves Jesus so long as he benefits them, so long as he serves them. Is that you? Do you go to him only when you need things? Do you pray to him only when you have problems? When your life isn't going the way you want it to, do you lash out at him? Because surely he owes you a good life. You see that? Is Jesus here primarily to serve you? Everybody's happy to have Jesus so long as they get to stay on the throne. So long as he's the divine butler that can be summoned to fix their problems and then go away when we have no need of him. And Jesus shows up like he has over and over and over and over again and totally flips our backwards idea of how we are to relate to him and is essentially saying, I did not come to be an add-on to your closest relationships. I came to be the relationship. And if you want to have me at all, it's going to disrupt all of your other closest relationships. Another way to say it is, precious sheep, I do not exist for you. You exist for me. You have it completely backwards. He's dealing with a fundamental problem with the human heart. In our first sermon in Matthew, uh, back in Matthew 1, our great genealogy, we we talked about, I I quoted C.S. Lewis, this idea that he brings out, And I said, we'll see this over and over and over and over and over and over again throughout Matthew. And C.S. Lewis makes this point where when Jesus shows up and he makes the kind of claims that he makes about himself, that he is the king of the universe, that he is the Lord that everyone must bow the knee to, it all of a sudden gives you two options. When you encounter him, you have two choices and only two choices. You crown him as the king of your life or you kill him as someone who threatens your way of life, as someone who's bringing disruption to your life that you don't want. You completely accept him as your Lord and King, or you completely reject him. The only option you don't have is Bible Belt Christianity. Liking him, him being a casual acquaintance, him being someone you summon every now and then. His claims, who he says he is, is far too great to just be liked. You will have all of him or you will have none of him. And he will have all of you or he will have none of you. He is either your greatest enemy, the greatest threat to your way of life, because he's telling you to lay down your life, or He's the Lord of your life, but it is one of those two. There's no third option. N.T. Wright, uh, who's a New Testament scholar, Anglican bishop, says this in his great book about the resurrection of Jesus. How can you live with the terrifying thought that the hurricane has become human, the fire has become flesh, that life itself became life and walked in our midst? Christianity... Following Jesus either means that or it means nothing. It either is the most devastating disclosure of the deepest reality of the world or it's a sham 
a nonsense, a bit of deceitful play-acting, most of us, unable to cope with saying either of those things, condemn ourselves to live in the shallow world in between. There's no third option. Christianity is either the glorious reality that the Son of the living God took on flesh to be your Lord and you found everlasting life in him and rejected all other ways to so-called life, or it's ridiculous sham. Crown him or kill him. He cannot be just liked. I did not come to just bring peace, to just be a friendly add-on. I came to bring a sword. I came to force a choice. I came to bring disruption. So that's the first thing he says, and he's going to take it one step further. So if you're uncomfortable, I'm sorry, it's going to get worse. He will disrupt your life, but he's also the only one who is worthy of your life. Verse 37, whoever loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. What is he saying? Taking it one step further. He's saying, I came to be king. I came to have all of you. And that isn't just your relationships. I came to take all of your love. I came to have the supreme spot in your relationship and the supreme spot in your affections. I will not be one of many competing loves. I will be the love. I will be the supreme object of your affections or nothing else. I didn't just come to be the main person in your home. I came to be the main person in your heart. You see that progression. He doesn't just want your loyalty. He wants your love. He wants your affections. Now, let me alleviate your fears. Jesus is not encouraging you to hate your family. Okay? He's very pro-family. We see that all throughout the Gospel of Matthew, caring for your family. What he's saying is, if you're going to follow me, your love for me must be supreme and there's no close second. You do have love for others, but it is infinitely a different category than your supreme love for me. There is a radical difference between your love for a close friend and your love for your spouse. A close friend you can enjoy, you can spend life together, but then they leave and you keep doing whatever you want, right? A spouse you enjoy and everything about your life becomes intertwined with your love for them. Your plans, your time, your money, everything about your life in this unique relationship is now intertwined with the love in this relationship. And Jesus is saying, I didn't come to hang out with you. I came to be your bridegroom. I came to be the chief object of your affections, the center of your life. He is claiming supreme love, which is a big claim, is a massive claim. Did anybody reading this or hearing Wade read this get a little uncomfortable? Like, what happened to my humble Jesus, right? He's all of a sudden, sounds a bit arrogant, Jesus. Can't love anybody else except you. Seems a bit extreme, right? It's probably even worse than you think. What's the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And Jesus here is saying, potentially, ignore the greatest commandment. Love me with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That would be the most arrogant statement that could be made. It would be the height of blasphemy unless you're God. 
It is the most blasphemous thing that could be uttered by anyone unless you are God. If you're God, then what Jesus is inviting you towards is the love you were made for. Jesus is inviting you to set your affections to delight in the one you were made for. Is it arrogant of Claudia to say to me, love me more than every other woman? No. My wife is Claudia, by the way, if you're new. Uh, That's not arrogant of her to say. It's proper. She should say that, and I should obey it. Why? Because she's my wife, and no one else is. And in the same way, Jesus is your God He's your Lord. You were made for him. You have breath so that you can praise him with that breath. You have affections so that you can set those affections on him. He's inviting you to be who you were created to be. Love me, and there's no close second. Love me more than everyone else in the world. The reality of the human heart is that you will worship something John Calvin, the great reformer, says our human hearts are just an idol factory, right? We just will always be looking for something to worship, something to set our affections on. And the reality is nothing else besides him deserves your affection. Nothing else besides him is worthy of your affection. And now we're getting to the main, po- main point of this little verse. Why does he say, not worthy of me? Why doesn't he say, if you don't love me more than everybody else, you just can't be my disciple? What's he getting at? Why does he choose those words? Why does he say, you're not worthy of me if you don't love me more than everybody else? Let me see if I can explain. So have you ever been in a situation where the thing that is most precious to you, you show to somebody else and they do something like this, meh, it's okay, and you feel that rage? Uh, my mother-in-law is visiting. If you encountered someone who looks like Claudia, just a little bit more Norwegian, that's my mother-in-law. And she came and she brought Norwegian chocolate, which is the best thing that can be tasted with a human tongue, right? Uh, And so we were having a bunch of family over last night and it was suggested that I share it. It was a gift to me and it's the greatest thing in all of the world. And it was suggested that, you know, I give some to my dad and other people, right? And I didn't want to at all. In fact, I resisted. I was like, you guys are full from dinner, right? You don't want any. Uh, and I did that partially, yes, because I'm greedy and I want it for myself. So th- there was sin in there. But a main reason I did it is I don't know if these unrefined Americans are going to appreciate the glory of this chocolate. Someone who would consume Hershey's, I don't think they have the right palate to properly appreciate... Uh, just, you know, milk chocolate from the heavens with hazelnut nuts in there. I mean, just glory, right? That's the primary reason. If they eat this and they don't declare this is the greatest thing I've ever eaten, fury will consume me, right? If you take someone to the Grand Canyon and they go, you know, it's just a hole. This is what you want to see. If you take someone to the Alps and they just go, these are cool hills. There's anger that shows up in your heart. Why? They're not properly appreciating the glory that is in front of them. No one, when someone says, meh, thanks, you know what, the Alps aren't that great. Everyone thinks this person must be blind. This person must be foolish. They clearly can't see. They can't taste what is right in front of them. And here, when we come to Jesus Christ, you have the greatest glory in front of you. You have the ultimate worth. You have someone who truly does make the Grand Canyon look like a hole in the ground. 
someone who does make the Alps look like an anthill, someone whose beauty makes the most glorious Texas sunset look like smeared mud. And if you give him anything other than your supreme love, you know what you've said to him? Meh. He's okay, I guess. And you've demonstrated your blindness. That's all you've done. You've demonstrated you're not worthy of the one that is in front of you. You've demonstrated you don't have the taste buds for him. That's what he's getting at. Because of who he is, he can make these incredible claims. Now, I want you to notice before we move on. Don't, when we, when we look at Jesus, when we take a microscope and look at him in these individual passages, don't miss the Jesus that we've seen all throughout Matthew. The whole of Scripture is meant to unfold for you your glorious Savior. So think back to what, what have we seen in Matthew? He is infinitely compassionate. He is the glorious God who will eat with the sinner. He draws near to the broken. But here we also see he's no pushover. He will not take your silver medal. He will not take your bronze medal. He will not take your blue ribbon or your participation trophy. He will take your supreme love or nothing. And if you choose the latter, all you've demonstrated is something about yourself. Nothing about his glory has changed. You've just demonstrated your own blindness. Because of who he is, he can make these incredible claims because he is the infinitely worthy one that we were made for. Takes it one step further. Because of who he is, he has infinite worth. He can claim our ultimate relationship. He can claim our ultimate love. And then we see, lastly, he can claim ultimately our life. Verse 38, whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life in this world will lose it. And whoever loves his life for my sake will find it. So he's not just claiming your relationships. He's not just claiming your love. He's claiming your whole life. You will give your life over to what you deem to be the most worthy. Why do people reject Jesus in the first place? We see a bunch of people reject Jesus in John 12. This is what John says. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. You'll reject him when you deem something else more worthy, more glorious than he is. And again, all you've done is display your own blindness. And Jesus here lovingly is coming to you and saying, if you search for life outside of me, all you will find is death. If you search for life outside of me, all you will find is death. Give your life over to a specific relationship. That relationship will fail you and leave you miserable. Give your life over to work and the next best promotion. All the satisfaction you think that promises will turn into a mirage. You'll try and take it and you'll realize you're less satisfied than before you started. If you run after happiness in this world, soon enough, you'll realize you're just running on a treadmill. Right? You're no closer to it, and all you're doing is exhausting yourself. The well of happiness in this world always runs dry and leaves you dying of thirst. If you search for life outside of him, you will only find death. 
It will only leave you miserable. But your merciful Savior is also saying, if you lay down your life here, if you don't run after your greatest happiness, but rather you lay down your life here and because you've seen my infinite worth, come to me. Yes, it will cost you. Yes, there will be disruption. Yes, there will be a cross. But you will actually find true life. You take the plunge into the shark-infested French waters. You'll put your hand under the surface and just find life, find glory. Find the only thing that can truly satisfy you. Jim Elliott, the, the missionary and martyr, said, famous quote, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Your life will be ripped away from you one day. Death is undefeated except for one event that we'll talk about on Easter. Your life will be ripped away from you. How foolish would it be to try and cling to it when it's going to be ripped from your hands? He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And here's where we actually see the, just the incredible beauty of our Savior. When you come to him and you actually give him everything, you get everything. When you make that difficult decision of laying everything down, what you think will be the hardest decision of your life, you realize it is the best decision of your life. Charles Spurgeon, the great Baptist preacher, says this, Even if I give the whole of my worth to him, he will find a way to give back to me much more than I gave. So when you come to him and you lay down your life, you actually find true life. Why? Because he is life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I'm the only way. Every other way leads to death. John 10.10, 10, I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. Please don't miss this. Please notice the heart of your Savior. He is not inviting you to eat your vegetables. Everyone who has kids knows they're not going to like this. We'll put as much butter and salt on it as possible and convince them with a lie that makes them stronger, right? Because you got to get the greens into them somehow. Jesus is not saying, I've got a bunch of boring religious things for you, but you get a mansion and not hell at the end of the day. He is inviting you to say, are you thirsty? Come to the Savior who is the living water and never thirst again. Are you hungry? Come taste of the bread of life and be satisfied forever. He is not inviting you to eat your vegetables. He's inviting you to the life you were made for. He's saying, see my infinite worth and come find infinite joy and life in me. What does Paul say? As Paul has the, a fairly miserable life, suffers a lot on the mission of God. Uh, but before coming to Jesus, he had everything. He gives this long list. You know, I was the top class. I had everything I could have ever wanted. And then he says this in Philippians 3. But whatever I gain, whatever gain I had, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of what? The surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord for his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. They're not just a little bit less. 
You're not saying, I'm, I, I've, I've neglected the good for the best. You're saying, when I come to him, I see the true state of everything else that's not him, rubbish. I count them all as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him. What's Paul's testimony? I was on top of the world, the pleasures of the world I was enjoying, and then Christ sat on the other side of the scale. And this is rubbish. I count it all loss that I might gain him because of the surpassing worth of knowing him. That is the only way for your duty to transform into delight. That is the only way to joyfully sacrifice to others. That's the only way to actually mock death. You want to never be scared of death again? Come to Jesus and see that all death can do is send you into the life you were made for. How can Paul cry out to live as Christ and to die as gain because he's found the only source of true life, Jesus Christ? Death rather than something to fear is something I mock because all it's doing is sending me closer to my eternity that I was created for where I will see his face. You see that? When you find him, when you lay down your life, when you think you've made the hardest decision, you realize you've gained everything because you've gained him. So, let me encourage you, put your head under the surface. Get in the waters. The French waters weren't shark-infested, by the way, but just even if they were, right? We're promised suffering. Even if they were, get in. Lay down your life. Put your head under the surface and see the ocean of his glory. Taste and see of the surpassing worth of your Savior who knows your name. And is calling, like we sang this morning, come. Are you hurting? Are you broken? Are you thirsty? Are you hungry? Come. I'm the living water. I'm the bread of life. You'll never go hungry again. You'll never be thirsty again. It may seem daunting to lay down your life. It should seem daunting. But it's the only way to find true life. One of my favorite uh, passages, I don't know if you can call it a passage, uh, in the Chronicles of Narnia series, one of my favorite scenes is, uh, passage sounds blasphemous. I, I, C.S. Lewis is not on the same passage or, uh, level as the Bible, okay? though I like him. Uh, Silver Chair, one of the books, actually one of my least favorite books, but this scene I love. Jill is one of the little girls that's gotten lost in Narnia. She doesn't know how she got there. She just had a fight with her friend that she got thrown into Narnia with, and she's alone. And she's walking around, she doesn't know where she is, and she's dying of, of thirst. She's so thirsty, and she can't find any water right, to satisfy. And she actually begins to think, am I going to die? And then she finally finds a stream. And as she begins to walk towards a stream, she sees standing over the stream is this great lion, Aslan, the, the lion that is Jesus in the stories. And it makes her obviously very uncomfortable. She doesn't know who he is. And so Aslan speaks to her, the lion speaks to her and says, if you're thirsty, you may drink. And as he speaks, Jill thinks in her mind, this is a voice that is deeper and wider and stronger, and it had a sort of heaviness to it, almost like a golden voice. And it didn't make her less frightened, but it made her frightened in a different way, she thought. And Aslan says again, are you thirsty? And Jill responded, I'm dying of thirst. And Aslan says, then drink. And Jill takes a step forward, and then she pauses and says to Aslan, 
could you maybe go somewhere else? And then as he looks at her and gives a low growl, she realizes she might as well have asked a mountain to move. And then she says again, will you promise not to uh, do anything to me if I come? And Aslan says, I make no such promise. And Jill asks, do you eat little girls? And Aslan says, I've swallowed up girls, boys, women and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms. And Jill says, I suppose I must go and look for another stream. Or excuse me, she says, then I dare not come and drink. And Aslan says, then you'll die of thirst. And then she says, I suppose I will go and look for another stream. And Aslan says, there is no other stream. And so Jill slowly approaches and drinks in front of Aslan. And in an instant, it was the coolest, most refreshing drink she had ever tasted in her whole life. And instantly, her thirst was quenched. Whoever finds his life would lose it. There is no other stream. But whoever would lose his life for my sake will find it. You'll find the living water. You'll have your thirst finally quenched when you come to him. So come to him and lay your life down before him. So that is the worth that he has. The disruption that he brings into your life, the worth that he has that demands all of you or none of you. And then lastly, he's going to kind of pivot back to the mission. As he's kind of corrected this backwards way of thinking, he exists for us. He exists to solve our problems and to bring peace in the way that I see fit and use his power in the way that I see fit. Now that he's corrected that, see, we exist for him. Now that we've crowned him as king, Jesus is going to give one final uh, preparation, if you will. Now that we're thinking rightly that he's our supreme relationship, love, and life because he's worthy, he is going to show us one final encouragement as he sends everyone out on the mission. Verse 40, he's going to show that he is rewarding. The last thing, he is rewarding. Whoever receives you receives me. And whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. The one who receives a prophet, because he is a prophet, will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person, because he is a righteous person, will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water, because he is my disciple, because he is a disciple, truly, I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. And then closing off the section Chapter 11, verse 1, when Jesus had finished saying, finished introducing or instructing the 12 disciples, he went on to teach and preach from their cities. So what's happening here? Let me, let's unpack this together and then explain what's happening. So we've seen the whole chapter, chapter 10, shows followers of Jesus, his disciples, we're not just watching him do a bunch of mission of God stuff. We are in the mission of God. To follow him is to follow him in his mission. As the Father sent the Son, so the Son sends you out into the world to proclaim the gospel. We've seen that reality all throughout chapter 10. And here we see Jesus is kind of rounding out the picture. He's not just talking about you as the sent ones. He's talking about the ones who would receive you. Okay, So receive is kind of a total statement of take you into your home, 
hear you and believe your message, right? Receive you and the message that you bring. So the ones who are sent us and the ones who receive us, he's highlighting them, right? When they receive you, sent one, they also receive me. What's he getting at? You are not just carrying a Jesus telegram when you go out. You're carrying him. You're proclaiming a message that leads others to him. Paul even will phrase it like this. We proclaim Christ. Him we proclaim. Right? The gospel of Christ. We're carrying Christ. And so when someone receives you and believes the gospel, they are receiving Jesus. It's essentially another way to say, we're not showing up and saying, hey, I've come a long way as a missionary. There's a lot of awesome stuff happening back in Jerusalem. So if you make a nice long trip there, a nice pilgrimage, maybe you can get in on it. Rather, Jesus is saying, when someone receives you, salvation has come to this home, as we see all throughout the book of Acts. It's not news for people to come back and go to come to this geography. It's rather as we take the gospel out. When someone receives the message, they're receiving Christ. They're receiving Christ. And essentially what he's doing is highlighting all who participate in the mission, whether you are sending, you're going, you're aiding in some sense, giving a cup of water to little ones, or receiving will receive the reward. We'll receive a reward. Even the smallest aid, right? The little ones here aren't kids. It's like, Literally, he's meaning the most insignificant disciples, right? So let me think of an example. I'm just kidding. I wouldn't do that to you. Uh, you, no. Uh, a couple people. We've got some little ones. I'm just joking. Uh, even if you give a cup of water, that's not worthy of a reward. It's just like, a, yeah, you give someone a drink. Jesus is saying, I, I, I won't overlook that. Any sort of participation in the mission of God will be rewarded. Notice what he's doing. He's just covered heavy things. You're going to be sheep among wolves. Your family's going to reject you. The disruption of the gospel is going to wreck your life. It's going to disrupt your life, but don't take your eyes off the glory that it's for. There's a reward on this mission. And what is the reward? Is it just the prophets and the sent ones are carrying around gift baskets? What's the reward? It's him. It's the message that leads to him. The gospel is glorious because it leads you to the glorious one. The gospel is joyful because it leads you to the God of all joy. No one will miss out on the reward. And we saw a few weeks ago, there's a, there's a real sense in which we go through this pain and there's a reward on the other side of the pain. Jesus wants to fix our eyes on what's on the other side of eternity. And we quoted some incredible martyrs who right before they were burnt at the stake said, be of great cheer, we're going to have a merry supper with the Lord tonight, right, on the other side of these flames. Here, Jesus is even taking it closer to you. It's not just endure pain now and there's a reward later, although that is true. It's you will have the reward of him in the midst of the pain. In the midst of the valley of the shadow of death, you will have him as you face pain on this Mission, you will hear the sweet, comforting words in your ears. I will never leave you or forsake you. We'll see when we get to Matthew 28, and Jesus does send out his disciples the final line I will be with you always to the end of the age. And again, we have a perfect example in the Apostle Paul, the great missionary of the church. He's going out, he's going through the pain of the mission. His family's rejecting him. All those who he loved is cutting them out of their lives. And we see this in 2 Timothy as Paul is at the end of his life writing to Timothy, his disciple. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. 
The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposes our message. For at my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. No friends when Paul's at his most vulnerable. At his defense, when he needs people alongside him, no one came to stand by me. All deserted me. May it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. You see, in the midst of the pain, the Lord stood by me. As you go out into the mission, yes, there is a glorious reward on the other side of the pain, but even in the midst of it, there's the sweetness of your Savior who says, I'll never leave you. I'll stand by you when all others desert you. And so, like always, the question for us as we close is, how do we actually do this? Is this an easier said than done thing? How do we actually lay down our lives for him and crown him as Lord? How do we not just like him? How do we not just have him as a casual acquaintance? How can we know that if I do take the plunge, how do I know that I will actually find the life that you're promising me? How do I know there's life on the other side of this plunge of laying down my own life for your sake? And the answer is you can know that if you lay down your life for him, you will find life because he laid down his life for you. Though he is infinitely worthy, he lays down all of his glory. He leaves the Father's side and comes down and takes the form of a servant. He's born in a manger. He dies a slave's death. He feels the ultimate disruption. His family calls him crazy. All of his close friends, what do they do when he's arrested? They desert him. One of them betrays him. One of them denies him. He knows the sword of family disruption. He knows the ultimate loss of Love, what does he cry out on the cross? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The son who had been for all eternity in the bosom of the father is forsaken. And he loses his life. He feels the ultimate sword. He's pierced for our transgressions. And he's bruised, he's crushed for our iniquities. Also that by his wounds you might be healed. That by his death you might find life so that when you actually lay your life down, you can know you're picking up resurrection life. You can actually now, like Paul, mock death. Oh, death, where is your sting? Send me into the eternal, glorious, joyful life I was made for. Death can only benefit you when you've picked up true life in him. You can know that even in the midst of the pain and the sword, he will never leave you or forsake you, and you can know that you have an eternal reward, not just in eternity, but now in him. Are you thirsty? Come, drink of the Savior of living water and never go thirsty again because there is no other stream. Let's pray.
Father, is it incredible that you have sent your son, that we weren't asking for him, we weren't crying out, Father, we're sinners, please show mercy on us for one second. We were happy in our rebellion. And yet you sent your son to overwhelm our rebellion. We are very happy pursuing our own way of life and you sent your son to show us that we're actually running towards a cliff. We're very happy in the pleasures of the world and you sent your son to show us all we're doing is drinking poison. And you sent your son not just to show us how not to die, you sent your son uh, to give us life, true life, eternal life, that we might have the joy that we were made for, that the breath that comes from our lips might fulfill its purposes of praising you. And so I, again, pray that your spirit would change our hearts to see this, that we would lay our lives down, that we would see your son as infinitely worthy, that we wouldn't see all the pleasures of the world and the surpassing worth of Jesus Christ as in competition. We would genuinely see his worth as infinitely surpassing anything the world has to offer us and let us find our life in him. We pray and beg that you would do that in his glorious name. Amen.